Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Thursday, November 22nd, 2012. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today's topic is the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion, which serves as a preface to the book Alcoholics Anonymous, is the foundation of the whole big book and the entire fellowship. And here to speak about the doctor's opinion is Ruth, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in St. Louis, Illinois. Ruth spends a great amount of time teaching the program of recovery, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters, and carrying the message of hope and salvation. Now, with great delight, I turn the meeting over to Ruth. Welcome, Ruth. Well, thank you, Leah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, I love the big book, love the doctor's opinion. As you said, it is the foundation. So I'm honored to be able to talk today. Um, First, I want to wish everybody a beautiful, I call this the Amateur Glutton Day that we're all celebrating. There's a lot of people out there. We see them at Thanksgiving, and uh, we know they are pure amateurs. They are trying to do that one day what we have perfected with our Ph.D. in gluttony, and uh, so we need to give them honor for their attempts, failed attempts to ever compete with us, but let them try. So this is the Amateur Glutton Day. No, actually, it's also Thanksgiving. It's, uh, that has now become what uh, Thanksgiving is for me, is a day of gratitude. So uh, to start the doctor's opinion, um, I, I'll basically talk about just the very, very quickly uh, the whole overall context of the book. Um, I, I'll have, I will say that I was, I've been absent since, 19, uh, since uh, November 15, 1986, 26 years, and uh, I got abstinent. I came in program in 82 and uh, struggled uh, absent, not absent, absent, not absent. And then in 1986, I went to a weekend retreat with two men called Joe and Charlie. Um, I got it. I understood it, and uh, and then leaving there, uh, began to open up the big book and read it as I'd never read it before, and understood it. And so much of what I say, I have to give credit to them, Um, and then even the other little things I said, I've got to give credit to everybody else. So almost nothing you hear from me comes out of comes originally from my mouth, very little. Um, But basically, what they said is this book is a textbook. And what that means is if it's, um, if it's like an encyclopedia or a dictionary, you can go and open up that part of the book. I want to know how that word is spelt. So I'll open up that part, and I'll look there, and I'll see it, and I'll close the book back up. I now have received the piece of information I want. Uh, but the book, this big book is not a text. It is not a, like a dictionary, a, a encyclopedia. There, it's not. That's not what the purpose is. We get to open up and then study that piece and close it. No, a textbook means... If you're going to learn uh, algebra and you decide that you're going to open up to page 58, start reading, rarely have you seen a person fail, um, you know, that's probably not going to work if you have not studied any of the pages previously because you don't even know how to add and subtract yet. So we need to study the book exactly as it was written in the order in which it was written for each page builds on the previous pages, and so we need to look at the book in that form. Um, it is a t- it's going to give us one purpose, and that's going to give us clear-cut direction on how to be recovered. 
This book was written by 100 recovered alcoholics. The original 100 alcoholics did something that no other piece of literature since that time has done, be it an AA, OA, or anything. They had an experience of coming from a hopeless state to a state of being recovered, and so they've written a book telling us how they did it. They had the experience and followed a piece of literature, literature to describe that experience. Every subsequent piece of literature is not written by 100 recovered people that told you how they did it. It's really writing about, the, about, about it, about it. So we have the direct experience and a piece that reflects that. Everything else is about the steps, about the traditions, about you know, how we do certain things, about it, um, to maybe enhance it, supplement it, uh, clarify it maybe at parts if we feel the need for that. But nothing is from the original 100 that have already had the experience telling us. We're learning it, and we want to learn about it so that we can be like the original 100. So we're after them. So we better listen, um, because they're going to give us exactly what they did. And that means we need to do exactly what they did so that we can get exactly what they got. Uh, we don't get to editorialize this book, although we love to do that. The disease loves to editorialize it so that we don't ever get recovered. Um, so anyway, the book is written. It's got three basic questions it's going to answer. And these three questions are an ancient way to solve problems. We've, we've been around since millenniums. You know, how do you solve something? Well, you know, first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is my bladder's full. My problem is my bladder's full. The solution, I know, is to go to the bathroom. And uh, then I go and do it. I don't really think that through. I just do that. That's kind of what happens when I wake up in the morning. Then I can meditate. Uh, but that's the first thing I usually end up doing. So... Um, this book is going to answer those three basic questions. And the first question it's going to answer is, what is the problem? What is the problem? And the, what is the problem is step one. So I'm going to have to study the foundation of this program and learn what is the problem. Now, if I don't have the problem of compulsive eating, then I don't need to be here. I'm wasting your time. You're wasting mine. I can move on and go somewhere else, do something else, because I don't have the problem of compulsive eating. Uh, gluttony is what I call it. That's what I did. I mean, we can call it compulsive eating. I, uh, we understand what the word gluttony means, compulsive eating, whatever terms you want to use. But I have that problem. So if I know I have the problem, which I have to know 100% with absolute perfection, as it says in A12 on page 68, then I, 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 I'm begging, please tell me the solution, because now I feel completely, utterly hopeless with complete despair. Um, if I don't believe I have the problem, if I don't believe it 100% with absolute perfection, then I'm not going to move towards step two with what a person that is utterly hopeless with utter despair moving towards. But I, I am. I, I've got a complete acceptance of this, and this has to be accepted 100% with absolute perfection. Then I want to know what is the solution. Well, if I know what the problem tell me the solution. I beg of you to tell me the solution. And the solution is step two. Once I know the solution, I said, oh, my God, yeah, yeah, that's it. Then I then have to make a choice and decide, you know, what am I going to do? So how do I get the solution, which are steps three through 12? 
So today we're going to talk about what is the problem, step one, and that's what doctor's opinion does. Dr. Silkworth was the physician that treated Bill W., and then he wrote a piece to describe exactly what the solution, I mean, what is the problem. So we begin there. Um, so when we go and look at doctor's opinion, uh, you know, one of the first things it says, is, it says on the very first page that this is a medical estimate of the problem, medical estimate. It would be a legal estimate if a lawyer had written it. Um, I guess if it had been, uh, it could be an economic estimate of the problem if it had been an economist that had written it. Um, it could have been a, a description from the mental health profession if it had been written by a therapist, but it was written by a doctor. So this is the medical estimate. Well, right away we know we're going to get something about the physical. We're going to have to get that because what does the doctor do? And Dr. Silkworth was a very, very, very humble man. He never tried to step beyond his bounds and claim knowledge of that which was out of his expertise. So he, did, he didn't ever go into some of these other facets of ways of what we can look at the problem. He just went to the core. This is what he knew from his experience of working with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics. Um, and he tells us exactly what that problem is and then mentions what the solution is. He mentions it, but later in the book, we'll find out in more masterfully detail exactly what that solution is. He knows what it is because he's witnessed it in these, in these people, but he's going to focus on what is the problem. So when people say, um, I am recovered, um, one of the things about this book that distinguishes it from all other pieces of literature and specifically OA literature, it is written in past tense because it's already happened. These people have already had the experience of being recovered they're not trying to get there. When you read the big book, you will read it in past tense because it's already been done. When you read OA literature, you will find it is written in present tense because it's, people are trying to do it. And there's a very key component of when you read the literature. Just one simple, easy thing you can tell just reading it, present tense versus past tense. So uh, what you'll notice in what I'm going to say is that I will be at variance with the OA literature and much of what is said in t at times in meetings. Uh, I don't apologize for that. Uh, I am a big book thumper. I recovered through the big book. That's how I recovered. That's how I sponsor people who then recover. Um, that's how I do it. I do not use the OA literature as a way to recover. That is not my approach. So when you hear me say something, you go, well, that's not in the OA literature, I'll tell you yes. That's, that's with intent that I'm telling you that because I recovered through the big book. So to say I have recovered, which is not used in OA literature because it's in present tense. We're trying to get there. This is written by people who have already done it, so they have recovered. To be recovered from the problem, to be recovered from the problem. It will say that. We've recovered from the problem. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is step one. To say you're recovered means the problem does not exist now in your life. It's still there in your unconscious, you never get rid of it, but you're not acting it out. You're not practicing gluttony today. Um, you have not practiced gluttony, so thus you can say, by God's grace only, I'm not practicing it. So I have done what I needed to do in this literature to have two things happen, death of food and death of self. Death of food, we have to have the relationship we had with food, it has to die. And then death of self, self-will, has to second die, which will be steps two through 12. And if we can 
have a death of food and a sufficient death of self that we do not even think of doing the behavior of practicing compulsive eating, then we have recovered. And the, the step 10 promises on the bottom of 8485 then tell us what will happen once we get to that place where we have recovered. Does it say we're cured? No. If you go to page 85, it says we are not cured. So uh, it very clearly tells you what recovered means versus cured, and that will be covered on page 85, 8485. So what is the problem? What is the problem that Dr. Silkworth says? Well, um, as I have understood it, the key paragraph, there are many, many, many things, but we only have an hour. So let's look at the key paragraph that tells us what is the disease concept, what is the problem, what is step one. And then we can expand beyond that as time permits in the rest of the of doctor's opinion, because there's many, many things in here. So if we go and we look at XXVIII28, uh, at the very last paragraph on that page, let me read that paragraph and let's break that paragraph down. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The cessation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only no normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. And the next paragraph will talk about the solution. Is that last sentence is dead. So let's look at that paragraph. So I realize I'm talking to you, you're on the phone, I'm on the phone. So look at your, a watch or a clock. Everybody pretty well knows how to read a watch or a clock. So if we look at your your watch, and you were going to draw this, write this out, if you looked at 9 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, you would write the word physical allergy. Because what we, what Dr. Silkworth has described in this part is that we have a physical allergy. We have two things. That what is the problem? There are two components. There's a physical allergy yielding a craving, and there's a mental obsession. And he, in other parts of this, he'll talk about that. So there's a physical allergy yielding a craving, and there's a mental obsession. It is not three parts, as OA literature says, according to the big book. It's two things, physical and mental. So if we look at that and we say physical allergy, what does it mean to have a physical allergy? <clears throat> I think the best example, I have, an, I have a neighbor, and my neighbor is highly allergic to seafood, highly allergic to seafood. If he were to put seafood in his mouth, just one little bite, his throat would immediately swell shut and he would choke to death in 20 minutes, maximum 30. There's no question about that. It's a definite. He would kill himself in 20, 20 minutes or a minute. So what happens if he were to put a bite into his mouth? He, would ha he has to be rushed to the hospital. They have to give him an injection, and it has to take effect as he begins to slowly not be able to breathe anymore. Well, suffice to say, he is allergic to seafood. He has an abnormal reaction to seafood. And I can assure you, he's not a compulsive reader, but I can assure you if he ever eats out at a restaurant, he lets them know it's bad PR for you to keel over and die in a restaurant that really cuts back your business. They make sure he doesn't get any seafood or anybody around touching seafood that's preparing his meal. So he makes sure 
He has accepted 100% with absolute perfection that he's highly allergic to seafood, and he doesn't try it again, thinking this time it won't matter. Tomorrow I'll get up, and I'm sure I'll be breathing. Um, so he's highly allergic to seafood. He has an abnormal reaction to. Um, so what I know is I have an abnormal reaction to certain key food ingredients. I have an abnormal reaction to them. Now, my, my throat doesn't swell shut, but my belly sure gets bigger. These key food ingredients, if I put them in my body, my allergic reaction to them is I crave them. Normal people, the, fast, the fastest bite they'll put in their mouth is the first one. Everything else slows down because they're getting fuller. And when they feel full, they stop completely. They go from the fastest bite to the slowest and stop. We go, the, the, the first bite is the slowest. And then we only escalate and speed up. We put it in our body. And my reaction is, I have to have more. Not I think about it, I have to have more. Something happens in my body. And now they've done research, and we can get into the dopamines and this and blah, blah, blah. Now they've actually done some scientific proof to, to just show what Dr. Silforth already knew. Uh, he just didn't know the te technical, sci the scientific technology hadn't been invited, invented yet for him, but now it's all been confirmed, what he, already, what he was able to tell. Interestingly, 77 years have passed, and Dr. Silforth, there's not one single controversy or denial of his information that was given to us you know, all this time. So obviously, you know, that's pretty good when you can come up with an idea and nobody can even question it in all this amount of time. But anyway, so I put this thing in my body. So at 8.30, you would write the word craving. We're going to go counterclockwise around the circle. So physical allergy. I have some type of an abnormal reaction to something which yields craving. Now, you could say, well, okay, but I, I, I didn't binge on it this time. Well, that just means you're getting sicker and you're going deeper for a lower bottom. It doesn't mean you're in control. Uh, that's just us trying to play games and try to keep eating. So, but you had the craving. You wanted it. Something wanted it. What wanted it? The body wanted it. This isn't the mind. This is the body. The body itself had an abnormal reaction to that substance. My neighbor put seafood in his body, an immediate abnormal reaction to that seafood is that his, he will, his throat will swell shut. Um, my have immediate reaction to that food, and what happens is my body begins to crave it. It has to have more of it. And maybe, maybe I don't do it, but I sure want to. My body wants to. So let's talk about, well, what are those substances? Some people will use the argument, oh, my addiction, oh, it's the hardest. And that's called self-pity for some people. And then in self-pity, of course, I always ate more. It would always get me hungry. Uh, but really, when I look at it for myself and I work with others, I do not find it the hardest addiction that exists in the world. I simply say, is it the hard one for you now? Then let's deal with that one now. Whatever is your hardest one probably is the last one you give up. If you've had many addictions, you've given up. So we'll just look at what you have right now and not classify it as the hardest addiction for all people, because it's not. <clears throat> Neither is food the problem. For if food were the problem, we would have about 7 billion people right now that were compulsive eaters. 
So food can't be the problem because if it was the problem, everybody eats would have the problem. So it can't be the problem is food. The problem is between our ears, almost all of it. A part is the body and a part is the mind. So the body wants this and it craves it. In my situation, uh, what, I would do, what I do when I work with people, um, I, I just simply say to them, I want you to take out a piece of paper, and you can do this, and I want you to write down any and everything you controlled, any food you've tried, you controlled, anything you've attempted to control, anything you failed at controlling, anything you, you believe you've been successful at controlling. But I want you to look at the word control because it's used repeatedly in this book. And I want you to put down any, any and everything that, you know, that you've had this issue of control. Uh, because we know if it's never been an issue for us, we don't ever attempt to control it. We'd never put that down. We only try to control that which is out of control. Or if it's not out of control, we don't attempt to control it, correct? So we just put it down. Write it all down. Don't, don't editorialize it because I, you know, you're like some people, well, I've got about three things I figure I'm addicted to and I'm going to tell her two. No, tell, <laughs> tell me three. I'm not, I'm not going to be worse off if you're not honest. Put it all down. And then when we look at this list, we want to find what are the key common food ingredients or ingredients in that, in that list. You know, I haven't had sugar artificial sweeteners, you know, you know over 25 years. So I don't have to eat all the latest, newest examples of food containing sugar artificial sweeteners to say, oh, i got to add it to the list. Uh, it seems to have a problem. I know that I have a key food ingredient that if it is in any food, in any form, in any way, I can't eat it. I've learned that that key food ingredient, no matter, it's like the body and you put the clothes on it. The body is sugar, the clothes you put on it, regardless of what day it is, summer or winter or whatever the style may be, in expressing that sugar, still the core body of that person, that is sugar artificial sweetener. So I can't put that in. I can't do sweetness in my mouth. I put sweetness in my mouth, I want more sweetness. Um, that's just who I am. I have a taste bud in there that just kind of just just, just starts getting really excited about it to the point that I have to crave it. So I have to find out what are those key that key food ingredient or ingredients, and it'll be apparent, it'll be apparent, not to you because you're in the food, but find somebody that's recovered a sponsor that can go over that list and note, you've written 20 things down and 17 of them have sugar artificial sweeteners in it, yet it doesn't take a rocket scientist at this point to say, bingo, that substance, that food ingredient, we call it bench food in our program, but that key food ingredient is something I can't put in because my neighbor puts seafood in and his throat swells shut. I put sugar artificial sweeteners in my body and I crave them and I have to eat more of them. It's not really more complicated than that. People want to claim, well, wait a minute, you know, alcohol is so much easier. You just don't drink alcohol. Well, actually, you have to drink things like water, but you don't drink alcohol. And it's not that simple. For, for me, it means, for example, I don't do vanilla extract, lemon extract. I don't gargle with uh, mouthwash because it always has sugar. I don't do uh, cough syrup. It has alcohol, sugar in it. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't eat any food that's been cooked in alcohol because it doesn't always necessarily cook out. I eat more than just alcohol. So let's not play that game that, you know, it's so hard to figure it out. 
Why we want to make it hard to figure out is because the disease does not want us to be clear and concise about what that food ingredient or ingredients are. You'll find there'll usually be one, two, or three key ingredients. Another thing that people will say about this issue of craving, they'll say, well, all food's my problem. I'll give you a perfect example. person says, gosh, you know, uh, everything's my problem. And I say, well, she gives me the example of the old baked potato. The baked potato, I can't, I can't stop, for example. And I said, now, what exactly do you put on that baked potato? Well, I put on some butter, and I put on some sour cream, and, and I put on some cheese, and uh, that's what I do. And I said, really? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to not put on the cheese, high in salt and fat. I don't want you to put on the sour cream, high in fat and salt. And the butter, again, salt, but especially fat. You've picked three high you pick three high items of saturated fat. So what I want you to do is I want you to take that baked potato. You want to sprinkle a little pepper on it, maybe some herbs or spices, but nothing else. Just eat it just like that. Oh, I can't eat that. That doesn't taste good at all. I said, well, is it the baked potatoes that's the thing you're addicted to? Or is it all the things you put on top of it? You've already given yourself away. You can't eat high fat, high saturated fat, trans fat crap. You can't eat that. And that's the reason that you're overeating that, it's maybe not the, the potato. Because if you take off your binge food ingredient, which you've told me is high fat, and you eat that without that on that, suddenly you're not overeating that. Gee, maybe it's not that everything is my problem, which is a way for me to say, gee, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. Everything is my problem. I have to eat, so guess I can't pull this off. Well, the last statement is the only accurate statement in that is, yes, you can't pull it off because your disease is working through you with a bunch of crap and lies so that you keep eating what you're eating. So if you really honestly look at this list, find out what is the key ingredient ingredients that you always turn to, find the foods where you find them, and you eat those, and you cannot stop when you put them in, then you might say, bingo, those one, two, or three things I can't eat. It is no different than alcohol. You can't put the alcohol in, and you can't put in those key ingredients. But you'll try, and you'll walk all the way to your grave and die trying. But it won't work. So I'm saying we must understand what does it mean about the allergy and the craving, which is the biological response. It's not the mind yet. The biological response to certain foods, when we put them in, we have already crossed the line from eating them in some normalcy to a point where we have gone to an abnormal relation with them. That abnormal reaction from our body to them means we can never put them in in any form, in any way at all. If we look up earlier on this page in the first paragraph, it says in the middle of that paragraph, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. We can never use these particular key food ingredients in any form, in any way, at any time. It is just what the big book says. It's no different. We can't put them in our body. Done. History. On page 68, it says clearly on that page, only step one, where we made the 100% admission we were powerless over alcohol, can be practiced with absolute perfection. Not only do we have to make this admission that we can't put those key food ingredients in, we have to do it 100% with absolute perfection. Nothing less. Nothing less because I assure you, I'll guarantee you with absolute, this is true. 
you, a 99% of you, believes that you can't eat those key food ingredients. We'll call it, we commonly call bench foods. But 1% believes that you can. And I assure you, the 99% will not overeat again, but that 1% will. You cannot even have the least bit of ways of trying to go ahead and somehow prove you wrong. So when we look at this circle, we start off at, at 9 o'clock with physical allergy. 8.30 is, is then the craving. These key food ingredients, we will crave them if we put them in our body. And you know what they are if you ever get honest with it. If you really sit down and look at it, you know what you can't, you can't stop when you start because the body will have to have more. And even if you play this game and say, well, I didn't do it today, so I must be doing better. Really? You're just sinking to a lower, a lower bottom is all you're doing. Because if you crave it and you claim, I controlled it, the fact you try to control it means it's out of control because you'll never attempt to control something that's not out of control. You already have proved your addiction and what you're addicted to, and anybody around you who's recovered can see it in you. So you're fooling no one but yourself. All right, so then we crave it. Well, what will happen? You're right, maybe we won't do it right at this very moment. It's 10 degrees below zero out. There's black ice everywhere. You don't have money to buy the item. 2 o'clock in the morning, you're going to get in your car, slide on down to the ATM, and then slide to the grocery store and get your food. Well, maybe you don't do that until the next morning and the sun comes out and melts the black ice, and then you go get it, and then you claim you were successful. You waited a whole how many hours? No, not so. It just means that the craving is there and it's still there. And the height of that craving will probably reach about the third or fourth day. That's just the body. As you go through detox, as you go through withdrawal from the food you put in your body, as it diminishes, the desire increases because there's less of it, and now the craving increases. So you don't have to slap yourself on the back because you didn't go and binge for a whole nine hours until you did it. It's got nothing to brag about. It's just you and your disease talking. Okay, so now we know that we have this key food ingredient that we can't eat. This is one I find in working with people in program. There's a lot of people in program that aren't really accepting this piece of it already. I haven't even got around the circle. But right here at 9 o'clock and 8, you know, at 9, 8.30, at this little spot right here, there are people that haven't even done this piece. They haven't even got to the point where they've honestly looked at every single thing that they cannot eat in any way at any time. They have not been honest about it, and thus they will not be able to adequately understand the problem by choice because the disease doesn't want you to, and thus they've never taken step one. And like any structure, if you build the foundation out of sand, any adversity blows through and that building falls down. You must have a big, heavy cement that slab there to put everything on. And this step one is that foundation. So you have to be able to, and somebody has to help you with it probably, to look at what exactly those key things are and make sure then from that point forth that you never eat those in any form in any particular foods that they exist in. Yes, you'll get wise and get to learn labels, food labels. And you'll understand that. You'll have people giving you, there are tw more than 20 different words that mean sugar on that label. Trust me. Things you can't even pronounce. You don't know what you're saying, but they are sugar. So there are ways people that are recovered can help you go through that. Um, there, and I can give you the list. It's not that hard. Uh, my list is incomplete. It's like 20 different names. But those words mean sugar if that's your, addict if that's your binge 
food ingredients. There are others. Okay, so, all right, so then we know that the first thing at 9 o'clock is physiology, 8.30 is craving. What at 8 o'clock is you're going downward, put the big book here calls it a spree. So you can write spree slash binge. In programming, we usually call it binge, uh, but the book says spree. So what does happen? Because we put it in our body and we crave it, the result of that is we do binge. We do eat more of it than the body would ever want, even if it was a normal, healthy, non-alcoholic, non-glutton person uh, would eat it, just a, a little piece. I, I'll give you an example. I would be at these events and we'd have something. And the person next to me would get this little dessert, and she would go, oh, this is too sweet. I can't eat it. And I'd look at her like, what? Are you crazy? Give it to me. I've eaten mine, and I'll eat yours. What do you mean it's too sweet? You've eaten one little bite. You put it off on this little thing over in the corner, and you forget of its existence. You never look at it again. You never think of it again. What is wrong with you? You are crazy. That's what I would say, uh, not realizing I was the crazy one. I was the insane one. I never understood how anybody could find something too sweet. Or they'd put it on, they'd eat a bite. Oh, I can't eat any more of this. It's too rich. Again, I'm thinking they're crazy. Give it to me. Give it to me. I can eat it. Um, so I never understood the normal person's way of eating, as this paragraph describes. But what does happen is because I put that, that substance in my body, my body craves it, and then I'm eventually going to overeat it compulsively. I'm going to have some type of binge. And as I progressed through my disease, those binges got bigger, they got longer, and they happened more often. So I had a binge at 8 o'clock. Uh, we know what that's like. Now we can't, now it, we are eating. We are eating. And again, in program, we'll claim we're doing well if our binges are less than they were. No, they're still called a binge. My neighbor can't eat a bite of seafood or three bites of seafood. He still chokes to death. Okay, so at then, at what happens then at 7 o'clock, we have the OA Pledge of Allegiance. Yes, the book says this. We emerge remorseful, swearing off. We say, I'll never do that again. We swear off. We're not going to do it. We feel stuffed. We feel bad. We're hung over. We know we've messed up again. And we swear off. We. God's nowhere in the picture here. So we are swearing off. When that happens, then, okay, so we, we don't eat it now. But what now happens? Well, we hit bottom. And we say when we hit bottom, we think it's when we take the first bite. No, not really. Hitting bottom at 6 o'clock, we emerge restless, irritable, and discontented. Restless, irritable, and discontented. At this point, we're getting more and more of the food out of us. The withdrawal is heightening. That physical um, uh, allergy, the allergic reaction is at its height. Uh, we want more of it. Restless, easily agitated, you know, I mean, we're anxious, uh, worrying, you know, things are bothering us, we can't seem to focus. Irritable, easily upset and frustrated over nothing. And discontented, just overall general dissatisfaction with life itself, not finding even meaning in life. We are not a happy camper at this point. 
Uh, people around us want to give us a candy bar <laughs> because, because we get worse and worse in this state. Restless, irritable, and discontented. So when we look at that process, we have that physical allergy yielding a craving. We then have that spree or binge. We emerge from there swearing off, remorseful, saying we'll never do it again. And then we become restless, irritable, and discontented. That's what it means when your body has this reaction that's abnormal to that food substance that no normal person ever has. Well, in that place as you hit bottom, you're not going to eat the food because you've sworn off. And all you have now, you have one and only one thing that's going to deal with it. And that one and only one thing is called self-will or self, ego, whatever words you want to call it. But that's all you have because you've sworn off through your self-will. You can't do that anymore, and you know you can't do it anymore, and you're not going to do it anymore. But the result is you can't stop because, the old, because what now follows, which is the second piece of the disease, first with physical, physiology and craving, the second piece of the disease is called mental obsession. And we'll put that at 3 o'clock. And you can try to put a big barricade up between 6 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Put a big barricade up and call it will. I mean, that's when you get really serious. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. You're going to control it. You're going to control it. But understand, you don't try to control something that's never been out of your control. You're, so you're going to control it. But it never works because, you see, will will never get you out of this circle. The mental obsession will escalate. The mind now kicks in. And primarily our disease exists in the mind. For no matter how long we've been out of the food and don't have a physical allergy yielding a craving, the mind continues unless it receives something in which it alters itself, something it has to get. In fact, Bill W. writes about you have to have a profound personality change. That's the only way for that point there not to go up into mental obsession. The, the mind has to significantly alter, profound personality change, so that the mental obsession doesn't exist. But it does exist in you. So you go up there, and with that mental obsession, again and again, you've got to have it. You've got to not have it. got to have it. got to not have it. I gotta, I'll tell you one time. I went in a grocery store. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. I've been in program very little amount of time, but, you know, I've got that three days of squeaky clean abstinence, and I'm crazier than a loon. So I go into the grocery store, and I have to pick up two items. So I go in, and I go, and I see one of my binge foods, and I put it in my cart. And I go to try to get my first item, and I go, no, no, I can't have it. I can't have it. I can't believe I put that bench food in my car because I am after it. I am in charge. So I then took it and went back and put it back. And then I went along and get my first item. I started to go to get my second item, but then the thought occurred to me, maybe I could eat it. I went back and got it again in my bench food, and I again put it in my car. And then I went try along to get my second item. And then I said, no, 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 I, I can't do this. So I again take it out, and I put it back. And I go off then and finally get the second item in my cart. I'm thinking I'm doing very well. I turn around and realize the security guard is following me. Yes, it was kind of noticeable, my insane behavior. I was not very far along in program, and I was not laughing at the fact. Uh, but anyway, so when I get home, you know, my partner says, how come it took you so long to buy two items? Well, the, nobody realizes how many miles of exercise we can walk in a grocery store. So we say we never exercise. Trust me, the miles we work in the grocery store are pretty long at times. So uh, that's the craziness of it. 
So anyway, the mental obsession, because at that point, you know, I mean, the food was out. It wasn't the body telling me I had to have it. It was my mind. And uh, we know all the stuff that our mind says. We say a lot of things what our mind says. Uh, But when we have that mental obsession, we cannot stop. We cannot stop. Because once we get to 3 o'clock, we will swing all the way back over to 9 o'clock and complete the circle. We will take that first bite. And when we take that first bite, we will have a physical allergy, which will cause us to have a craving, which will cause us to have the spree, the binge, which will cause us to merge remorseful swearing off, which will then cause us to be restless, irritable, and discontented which then causes us to come up to the mental obsession and then swing back and have that first bite. In fact, the story is if you have crossed the line into addiction, you are in this circle, and you will never get out of the circle. And the key about this circle isn't that you trace in the circle and never get out of it. You, it's a spiral downward. So every time you come around that circle, you spiral downward, and that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually, you're nothing more than that black dot in the middle of that circle because that's all you do. You do nothing but live to eat your food. You've gotten to a point where that's all you have. That's your story. That's what will happen to you because once you cross the line into this, this is what step one means. It means you have a physical allergy, only craving, and a mental obsession. It means this. And so once in this, you cannot get out of this. There is no way ever, 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 ever you can get out of the circle. Let me say that again. Once you're in this circle, you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to do anything, think any thought, have anything that you could possibly ever do to get out of the circle. Once you're in it, you're in it for life. It's your death sentence. There is nothing you will be able to do. There is no therapist that will help you work through things. There is no health club that will take, take it away. There is no book that will take it away. There is no diet plan that will take it away. There is no sweetie partner that will make sure it happens. There is nothing that you can do to get out of the circle once you're in that circle. You have to accept that 100% with absolute perfection. Nothing less. You are in it, and you'll never get out of it. And once you can accept that 100%, once you accept that, you will feel utterly hopeless with complete despair, utterly hopeless. And let me just, even though it's not in doctor's opinion, the moment when Bill took step one on page eight describes what step one will make you feel like. On page eight, first paragraph, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I'd met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. If you take step one and you're still there, oh, I'm thinking about it. Yes, I think logically that makes sense. You haven't taken step one because you should feel utter despair. You should feel completely hopeless. Fear should be racing through your body and your thoughts. You are hopeless. You know you're hopeless, and you know you'll never get out of it. When you feel that complete, utter, utter despair where there is nothing, no possibility of any other option, and that's your life, and you are doomed to it, and you know that with absolute certainty, you're not going to feel good. 
when I work with people that take step one, it gets really messy and really ugly at this point, really messy and ugly, because they finally start owning up to what's really who they are. It's not an intellectual exercise. Every one of these steps has to be taken in our heart, not in our head. Our head is still is us, self-will. When the heart takes it, the heart knows it, it's at a deepest level a complete, utter despair. That's what you'll feel like when you take step one. You know, I'm saying, I'll, I've listened, I had this one person, was on, I was on the phone talking to her, and she was crying so hard, sobbing so hard, I could barely make out the words. Now, I'm on the other line, just jumping up and down, going, yay, 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 she's taking step one, she doesn't even know it. She's sobbing uncontrollably. She can't, even, she can't even make herself stop crying. She's crying so hard. She is just feeling horrible. She is sobbing and sobbing, and I'm like, I didn't tell her, of course, because she probably would have come through the phone line and, you know, slap me a few times, but I'm ecstatic because I know that's the state when you take step one. That's the state. Don't try to hit and make this bottom you hit soft because all you're doing is still trying to control it, and you can't. The key is you can't do this. You know this. This is what the doctor is telling us. We're in that circle, and we can't get out of that circle. All right? So let me read the paragraph again so that it, see if it makes sense when we understand it from this point of view, as I've described it. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I'll say effect produced. Now, when I read that for many years at the beginning, I said men and women drink essentially because they like food. Bingo, that's the disease talking. I didn't like the food. How could I like food that I took out of the freezer before I even thought it? I would eat it. Frozen food. How could I eat food that scalded my mouth, making blisters in the top of my mouth because I couldn't wait until it cooled down? How could I like food that I picked off the ground, shoveled a bunch of dirt off it as best as I could, and ate it? How could I like food when I was working in a restaurant in the back, taking the leftover food, oh, cutting off the piece the, the patron out front apparently ate, and eat the rest so it didn't go in the garbage because it had to go in my stomach? No, there's no, that's not liking food. That's being driven by a compulsion that I cannot stop. So there's nothing about liking the food. That's just your disease talking. You don't like the food. You have to have it. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by the alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented, and unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless the person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. That's our story. If you don't buy into that, you don't think you're one of us, either you're not one of us, and you're wasting our time and yours because you don't need to be here. But if, if you can't buy into this because you don't want to give up your little sweetie fixes, then you will live the utter, most hopeless despair and destruction that you will have. It is, it is murder. It's murder of oneself and all the people around them. It is complete destruction, and you're in it. And some of you listening to me right now are in it. But if you can accept this paragraph as it's written, understanding that's who you are, and you will never get out of it. If you can accept that, then, and feel the utter remorse 
And so in all of that, then, hey, you got a chance. You might be taking step one. I hope you feel uncomfortable. That's great. I love to take step one with people. The more uncomfortable, the more they cry, the more anguish they feel, great. They might be getting somewhere. Again, this isn't an intellectual exercise. Now, so you say, well, uh, but what, what, if I can't do it, then what, what can? That's called step two. I don't want to rush you there. I want you to feel hopeless right now. So we, we can talk about the solution. Um, Dr. Silkworth says on, X, on XXX, the second last paragraph, that all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Dr. Jung, in their solution, will tell you more about the mental obsession but at this point, he's telling you, you've got to put all the food down, all of it in any form, in any way. There isn't any other option. You look at that list, you find what are those, that key food ingredient ingredients. You will then create a food plan with your sponsor in which that food ingredient is in none of those foods. If you look at it, there's this big area, and there's a box in the middle of that area. And in that box is any food that has that key food ingredient or ingredients. That's that box. My job as a sponsor is to say, create a food plan of all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other options, but don't go in that box. I'm not going to give you a food plan. I'm not going to tell you that you have to eat the way I eat. I, I sponsor many people. None of them eat like me. I don't like eat like any of them. My job is to let you know if you're going to go over there and kind of want to open up and kind of stare at that box. If you're going to try to slip in there and get something out of that box, that's my job. You can eat anything else you want, but don't go into that box, because in that box is that key food ingredient ingredient. You can't go in there. And if you can take the step completely, 100%, and you know utter despair, you are rushing to step two to find out what the solution is. You'll do whatever the big book tells you to do at this point, because you have to have it. But the bottom line is, you know you can't do it. You're working with somebody. You have to find out what will get you to be able to not go into that box and pick something out. I can, t I can tell you, honestly, I know if I go in a grocery store, 80% of the things in that store, I, I'm not going to eat. I'm not even able to eat them. I don't want to eat them. And now, at this point, they're crap, you know, toxic. I, I've got to a point in my recovery that I don't eat certain foods that I'm not addicted to because they're not healthy for the human body to eat. So I don't even eat those either. But that's later. At this point, you've just got to not eat anything in which the key food ingredient is in it. I hammer this home because... It is a key component of step one that we don't want to do. We don't want to do it. Um, but we have to do it. Our only option is we have to not eat those ingredients. Whatever they are for you, don't eat them. I went and studied the food industry. I don't know what it is now, but it spends $8 billion a year. That's not pocket change. $8 billion a year the food industry spends on how to do research and marketing in order to put three key food ingredients in their foods. One or more of these ingredients are on almost all of their foods now. These three key food ingredients that they've spent $8 billion to learn so that they put them in the foods because when they put them in the foods, more people buy the foods. They have a higher profit, profit more money is in their pocket. 
they've learned with $8 billion a year what these three things are that they put them in, people will eat more of the food. So if you can get one of them in, two, three is even better. They learn that. It's not complicated. They know what they are. So they manage to get those three key food ingredients in as, every, as many foods as they can. And as we know, people are eating a lot more, and people are getting more and more obese. So it's not complicated. They, the professionals, have learned what these three ingredients are that people will buy more of. And my experience in working with people, usually we have one or more of those three key ingredients that are, we are addicted to. Uh, but what you do is you create that list. It's a box that you have, and your sponsor helps you, and you can't go in that list. But what can you do? If you cannot do it, if you can't possibly stop getting out of the circle, and you feel that utter despair, then that means you are powerless. You are powerless. You can't do it. To completely accept you are powerless means that you know that you'll never, ever, ever get out of the circle, ever, until you die. Your misery will only increase. That's your awareness. You now have taken step one 100%. If you know this with absolute certainty, absolute perfection, that that's your story, that's who you are, you know that you're powerless over food, that your life unmanageable. You know it. You know it in a way you've never known it. You know it in a place within you that you've never really known it or never wanted to go. You know your truth. And so at that point, you will do anything to find out what is the solution. The problem is powerlessness. Now, if it's alcohol, it's, you know, it's powerless over alcohol. If you're in, with us, it's powerless over food, specific key food ingredients. If it's a gambling, then it's you're powerless over gambling. Whatever it is, you know you're powerless over it. And it is your God. There is no God other than that. It is your false God. It is what you live for, what you suffer from, and what you'll die from. But it is your God, and that's your story. It's just where you've come to. And can you finally accept this 100% with absolute perfection? Can you finally do that with no hesitation? Don't use any of the crap that you'll hear in meetings when people are justifying eating their food. Um, you know, when the people will say, well, they want to come in the meetings and they want to ask why they're overeating. I, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why am I overdoing it? Maybe somebody can help me. Translation, let me know so I can now still control it. I want to know why, so now I can control, because I can't control. I understand you're right. I can't control it. But I'm not willing to accept that 100% because I'm asking for information from you on an intellectual exercise that now if I have that information from you, the members of OA, I now can go home and put that into practice, and now finally I'll be able to control. So all you're doing is using the fellowship to continue to promote your disease. Because if you know it 100% with absolute perfection, you quit asking why. It's irrelevant, the answer. Let me say that again. If you know this 100%, you quit asking why because it's irrelevant. The answer is irrelevant because it doesn't matter. You're powerless. You don't need to know why. It's irrelevant. And the funny part of this is you ask why, 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 and when you get to four and say, hey, guess what? You go, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You might now. I have a few. Oh, no, don't want to know now. You don't want to do that. So that's a way to tell you that you're not surrendered 100% because you don't need to ask why. You quit asking why because it doesn't matter to you anymore. It simply doesn't matter. Uh, when people come in and they go, well, um, 
I'm eating compulsively, but it must not be in God's time. I say to them, get a new God. The translation when you say that is, I'm going to blame God for eating compulsively, claiming it's not time according to his timetable, in order to justify continuing to eat compulsively. I'm hopeless. There's nothing I can do. God hasn't given it to me yet. Really. And so that, because you claim that God hasn't given to you, so you can keep eating compulsively. Let's just be honest, folks. When you say that, you know what you're doing. It's not nothing about not in God's time. It's because I'm still having my time, and my time wants to have it. So let's just stop. I've had people say, gosh, I'm praying for God to help me to be abstinent. Excuse me? That's not 100% a mission. You don't ask God to help you be abstinent. You pray to God to help him to do whatever he wants to do through you. Who are you to tell God to help you do something that you're not willing to completely let him have? There's no, there's no 100% in that comment. You would not dare ask God to be, help you be abstinent. God, please help me be abstinent. Excuse me? You don't need to tell God what to do. He seems to have it well done. He knows what to do. He doesn't need your directions. When you're helpless, completely helpless, and you know it, and 100%, you don't even have, you don't even feel like you deserve to ask for abstinence. That now when you realize how you screwed everything up, you don't even ask God for that. You simply turn your life over and say, do what you want with me, God. Do what you want. You don't ask God. You ask, what can I do to help you, God? What can I do to help you? I wake up every day and abstinence is given to me. It's been given to me for a long time now, 26 years. I wake up and I receive the gift. God loves me so much, so unconditionally, that God gives it to me every day no matter what I've done and how I've lived my life. I don't even deserve it, but God gives it to me every day. God loves me that much. I never asked God. I've never asked God for the last 26 years to give me abstinence. I just thank God. And when my heart's full of gratitude and it's bursting with love towards God that would give me, who doesn't deserve the gift, gives it to me every moment of my life regardless, I just feel gratitude. But I dare don't ask him for it because I don't even deserve it. But God gives it to me because God is love and God will give it to me no matter what. And so the problem isn't, isn't that I have to ask God for love tell you a story. There's these three little fish, and they're fishing in the ocean, fishing around, and along comes this big, mature fish. And she comes up to the three little fish, and she goes, oh, mighty fine day. The water is fine, isn't it? And they kind of nod their heads, yeah, yeah. And she swims away. And the first little fish looks at the second little fish, and she says, um, do you know what water is? second fish says, I, I, I don't know. second fish says to the third fish, well, do you know what water is? Third fish says, I have no idea. Third fish says back to the first, well, do you know what water is? First fish says, I don't know. So they spend the rest of their life swimming the ocean looking for water. I've known a lot of people in OA. They're swimming the ocean looking for water. So are we willing to do exactly what the big book says? Exactly. We cannot put any of our key food ingredients in our body. Our bench foods cannot go in our body in any form, in any way. We have to have entire abstinence. But we're not going to get it through anything we do. We're going to have to still be willing to accept a gift given to us unconditionally with no strings attached, and we don't even deserve it, but take it every day just the same. 
and we're a heart full of gratitude and we've taken that step and accept that gift, we don't play all these other games that we want to play. We finally do surrender. In fact, I have to tell you, on November 15, 1986, when I, I did um, finally surrender, on that particular day, I remember, I remember it well in retrospect. But I remember saying to God, I am so sick and tired of me and all the crap I'm doing at night. I, I actually use profanity. All the crap I've done. And I'm, I'm here, I've been in program four years. I'm still now back in the food. I am so sick and tired of it. I don't fucking care. Do what you want with me. Just do what you want. I don't even care anymore. I didn't even ask for abstinence in that moment. I never asked for it. I knew I didn't deserve it. And I just simply said, do what you want. I so was in the moment, I never labeled the moment. I, I had no words to describe that moment. I, I simply felt completely hopeless, asking nothing, expecting nothing, and not caring about outcome. You want to know if you've done God's will? You don't care about the outcome. You don't even care. You just let God do whatever. And you know, I haven't eaten compulsively since that day. So now looking back, clearly I did surrender that day. But I never attempted to, quote, surrender, call it surrender, give it any name or label. It was so painful, I didn't even look at it in that form. It was just a complete do what you want. And I was that fish swimming in the ocean looking for water. And on that day, I found out where water was in me and around me and would always be all, always there. I had come home. So the fight was within me and my refusal to take this step. It was never anything else. And are you willing to take step one at that level? Are you willing to go directly into the pain and experience it in its totality and accept it, self-inflicted, and experience that greater than you that will take care of it if you're willing to make that level of surrender? So with that, I'll close, and I'll turn it back to Leah. Thank you so much, Ruth, for your thorough, passionate, and forthright teaching of the doctor's opinion. We thank you so much for your time, your energy, your effort, and your experience today. We now invite everyone on the line uh, to ask any questions related to the doctor's opinion. You can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Anne Marie. Leah, are you asking for questions? Yes. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much, um, Leah, for setting this up. And, and Ruth, thank you um, again. I've listened to you uh, a couple of times, and I just appreciate you sharing your your experience and your knowledge. Um, I actually have two questions. One is, um, in your experience with working with other people, how soon do you see them once they have um, given up the trigger foods, I guess if you want to call it trigger foods, how soon after that um, have you seen the obsession of the mind uh, removed? And um, the other question I have is, I'm just wondering about that list of ingredients, um, of sh the sugar ingredients. I had, um, I was eating this cottage cheese for a, a long time, and um, I 
nutritionist suggested I make sure I look at all the labels and the same kind of cottage cheese, one came in a large container, the other one came in four little containers. The large container had maltodextrin, which is I know what the form of sugar, but the other, the smaller one didn't. And so um, I I look at all the ingredients, even if a food that I've been eating for a while, every so often I look at the ingredients. But I was wondering where you got that list. Is there a website that I can go to? So those are my two questions. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, on the first question, um, we know from the data from AA that uh, what they said of the original 100, and even when uh, Jack Anderson wrote the article for Saturday, Saturday Evening Post in March of 41, so by that time we're talking, you know, um, five and a half years, uh, they had 2,000 members at that point. They were saying 10% of the people had the experience Bill Wilson had in the hospital. And if you go back and read that in Bill's story, you'll have where he was in the hospital that day, he went in the hospital on December 11th of 34, and two days, maybe three days later, once he'd gotten through his, you know, detox, he had that moment in the hospital where the wind blew and everything seemed to change. And he stated that at that moment, not only did he never drink alcohol again, but he did not think of drinking alcohol again. Uh, so he left that hospital. Now, he had many problems. He had many character defects, and he came close to drinking again in, in the sense where his character defects would get out of control, but he did not have the mental obsession. Um, he didn't. He he could go wacko on his resentments and his depression and all of that, but he never really obsessed about it. So he was in that ten percent. Um, but then you have Dr. Bob's story, and if you read Dr. Bob's story, what you have is the ninety percent. And he uh, talks about in his story that it took to it took him two and a half years for his mental obsession to leave him. Now, here's a man that did nothing but work with alcoholics and actually 12-step over 5,000 alcoholics from the time he got sober until he died. That's 15 years, 5,000. Do you know that comes out to more than 300 per year? With him doing absolutely nothing but 12-step work, you know, an unbelievable level of service, even then it took him two and a half years for his mental obsession to leave. So these two co-founders really give you the example of both. In fact, if you go and look at the big book, in the back there's appendix talking, those two pages about the spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, if you go back and read that. And it talks about William James talking about the educational variety, which is my story because I took four years, you know, and finally it happened. Um, so I'm in that 90%. And then there's also the ones that have that sudden, uh, overwhelming moment in time where it all leaves all at once, and that's the 10%. Um, I, I think in OA, uh, again, I don't keep at, uh, you know, exact statistics, but I don't think we're at 10% in OA. I think we're less than 10%. Um, not many of us walk in the door abstinent, never eat, eat compulsively again, and never think to eat compulsively again from that moment forth, um, or at some point uh, in that, and then they never do it again. Um, I don't think we're near 10%, but at least in the original 100, we will say approximately 10 out of the 100 had that mental obsession removed completely. So when does the mental obsession go away? I don't know. That depends upon the person. And it doesn't mean you failed if you've had a mental obsession. In my case, I took, I didn't keep track. I just really never, I remember saying it was my sponsor, and we're talking, how long do you think it was? I don't know. How long do you think it was for you? I don't know. And we guessed approximately two years. Uh, so I would say two years before the thought, I haven't had a thought 
see my bench, not at once, not one single time have I had that thought in the last uh, 24 years. I would say for about two years before it completely left. Did it leave like a light switch flipping on? No. My example would be uh, what I can say, and this is what I tell people, and I work with people. This is a good thing to know. When you're working with them, because they don't know, notice this, if you notice, you'll ask them even about their thoughts, the thoughts, because they're not eating compulsively. That's, the food's down. But the mental obsession, the three things you want to know, it will be intensity, frequency, and duration. So you'll ask them, when you think your thoughts about eating, are they stronger or are they getting lesser? When you have the thoughts, is it more intense in your mind or is it, or is it decreasing in intensity? Is that thought less or more or is it the same? And then frequency, how often is it you thinking it? Are you thinking it more often or are you thinking it less often? And duration, when you have the thought, how long does the thought last in your mind? Is it something that seems to just go on for an hour or is it come and gone literally within about two seconds? So when you check them, you'll, you'll check it out with them. But these three things, to see what's going on. What we need to have happen is it needs to decrease. So the frequency, intensity, duration, those things need to be decreasing. If they are the same or increasing, you're in deep doo-doo. You're in a lot of deep doo-doo. And you've got to do something more than you're doing because you will eat compulsively. As the thoughts increase, you're going to do them. We already know that from that circle. So you, you might have put the food down, but you're not, you're not anywhere, anywhere where you can kind of take a sigh of relief. You, there is not, you are in deep, you're in deep trouble. You have to have those decreasing. As long as it's decreasing, as long as the mental obsession is decreasing, whatever amount of time it takes, okay, it's getting less, and it's getting less, and it's getting less. I'm fine with that. You know, if I can see that the, it's decreasing, I know they're doing fine. That just because they haven't stopped thinking it, they're just taking, like me, I took two years. So I don't really think the key is how long it takes to get rid of it. I like to look at the process of getting rid of it. And when I look at the process and it's getting rid of in them, I'm fine with that. And if it's not, I'll tell them, you, you're in trouble. You, you're, you're telling me what I'm hearing from you now is that you're starting to think more and more. So there's something that needs to be adjusted. We don't throw the whole thing out, but you've got to be doing something different, improving what you're doing, because you, I know what's going to happen. And, yeah, okay, then they'll need to make a necessary change so that the mental obsession decreases. So, again, I'm not going to claim how long it takes. Uh, the other key to that is um, this was a very powerful moment. It was about two years abstinent. It was about the time I had quit having the mental obsession. And anyway, I had a dream. And when I woke up in my dream, I thought I was actually not in a dream and it was my life. And my dream, I was eating, eating, I can't even remember what it was, but I was eating some sugar crap. And I woke up, and as I woke up, I thought I had done it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe it. I've done it. I mean, I, I got to the, I can't believe And then I realized I was, it was dark. It was black inside. I was, it was in my bed. I was waking up. It was the middle of the night. My heart was palpitating. I couldn't possibly go back to sleep. I had had a dream. And in my dream, I had eaten my binge food. And um, what I realized from that, I prayed to God to know what it meant. And what it was, God sent me a great gift. God sent me this great gift. No matter how long you never think of doing it, it will always rest within your unconscious, and you will not be aware of it consciously. My dream told me that it will never die. My disease always lives. 
It is always in me, even though I have not thought of it for 24 years now. It is always in me because it's in the, the part that only my dream would experience. So you never are cured. Your disease lives in the unconscious, at any point ready to spring forth into the conscious, and you act out on it. I then about seven years absence had a second dream, but I soon, oh, wait a minute, that was a dream. So God sends me these gifts to let me know where the disease always will be, and that I, thus I cannot be cured. I am not cured, or I would not have that dream. Your disease lives within you, even if you have no conscious awareness of it, the unconscious will always, we all have our unconscious. We all have a part of us that we are not aware of, and it will live there. And it will live there until it has a chance to express itself again. Um, the second question, um, that's an uh, outside enterprise. I mean, I can get you the information, but it is not an OA piece of literature. And later I can give you that information, but I don't want to give that on the line because that's not an OA piece of literature. But it, is, it can be found. Um, there are organizations that do that or quality, and you can do that. So, um, but if maybe after this is over and the recording's off, I can maybe give you that piece. Thank you, Ruth. Hi, this is Heather. Heather, go ahead. Thank you so much, Ruth. Um, I have a question. Uh, you spoke in the beginning about how you have your sponsees write out a list of all the things they've tried to control, and then through that you can determine which foods they need to eliminate. Can you speak more on um, behaviors and uh, discovering behaviors that need to be abstained from? Sure, food behaviors. Um, yeah, I'll start with the we can talk about the food behaviors and stop them, but that won't work as long as we put the food in our body. So I'll first start with the actual food. You put those down, and you're not eating those, but then we have to look at your behaviors. And I, I call it SUDS, seemingly unimportant decisions. Seemingly unimportant decisions. So for me, um, I look at things that I do that I'm not consciously aware of, that those thoughts come in, and then I do a behavior in which I'm not thinking of eating compulsively. It's not even in my mind. But I do that, that behavior, and then doing that behavior, the thought to eat compulsively then occurs as a natural consequence of doing the thoughts and the behaviors that precede them. So what I do is I take the food, then I look back at the particular thoughts and see about, uh, as I said, intensity, frequency, and duration. Then we go back further, and we look at any behaviors you're doing that generate mental obsession, that then generate the eating. Then we go back from behind those behaviors, and then we go into the thought that we have that generates the behaviors, that then generate the thought to eat, that generate the eating. And I continually will work backwards from that place, uh, depending, you know, how, that depends how quickly the person is. So studs are actions. I'll give you an obvious, it's always obvious when it's another addiction. I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm going to drive back to St. Louis. And there are two main routes that take me back from L.A. to St. Louis. And I'm a compulsive gambler, let's say that. And I can take one route that takes me through Las Vegas back to St. Louis, or I can take the other route that goes uh, and goes and gets me back. It's about the same distance, time, and that will get me back to St. Louis. Now, if I, as a compulsive, uh, uh, I mean, uh, as a gambler, and I'm in L.A., and I decide to take the route through Las Vegas. What do you think that's about? That's a seemingly 
unimportant decision, isn't it? Seemingly unimportant. I, okay, well, which one should I take? Oh, I don't know. I think I'll take the ones through off base. And I've not thought to, to gamble. It's not even in my mind. It's not in my mind. But you see, the disease doesn't work at that level. The disease works at a thought that will generate a behavior that is driving through Las Vegas that will then generate a mental obsession to gamble, which then generates gambling. So you understand that's an example. So let's put it in our terms. I decide uh, I'm going to go in the grocery store on the way home from work. Now, I should be eating supper right then, but I'm going to stop the grocery store just to pick up a couple items. So I go into the grocery store, seemingly unimportant decision, to pick up a couple items. I can do that on the way home before I eat my meal. So I'm now walking into the grocery store hungry because it's time to eat. That's a seemingly unimportant decision, isn't it? I'm just going to go in and pick a couple items up. But I'm walking into the grocery store at my mealtime when I should be eating my meal, and now I am physically hungry. I don't mean uh, I'm obsessing about food, but I'm physically hungry, and instead of taking care of my physical hunger, I'm going to go in a grocery store and pick up a couple items. That's a seemingly unimportant decision. Because you know, and I know, if you go in that grocery store when you're physically hungry, you're, that food looks a little more tempting than when you've eaten the meal and then go pick it up. Now, not only do I go in the grocery store when I'm physically hungry, I decide, and you've all done this when you've been in your disease, to walk down the aisle, a particular aisle, on the way to get these two items. But on this particular aisle that you go down, there's not one single food on that aisle that's not a binge food. But you walk down that aisle to get to the item that's at the back of the store. Now, let me tell you, if, when I go in the grocery store, I don't walk down the aisle with pet food. I don't have pets. Why would I waste my time walking through that aisle? So if you go in that grocery store when you're hungry, when you should go eat first, and you manage to walk down all your binge foods and pass by them so you can look at them to get to the item that you believe you had to buy at that moment, that's another seemingly unimportant decision. And you're not even got out of the grocery store yet. You don't go down the aisles. You don't ever go down the aisles of items that you shouldn't be eating because normal people don't go down aisles in which they don't have anything to go and buy out of. So we give ourselves away. So that's a food behavior. You know, I'm talking about these suds. Uh, if I, I one time um, had a person call me up, and uh, I'd, be, I'd been to her home before, so I, I, I knew where she lived. And uh, she, she worked at a major chain. And when she came out of that, there was a, a going home, took her literally by every single fast food restaurant that probably existed in the United States, and she would drive by there on the way home, getting off work in the evening and going home. And she said to me, you know, I'm driving by, and I, and I see these, and I just want to stop and eat. So I said to her, take another route home. She could have gone out the back door of this, extended it probably a block because it would have gone the back side instead of the front side out of the business when she left work, go down that street, turn back that one block, that was two blocks out of her way, would have added I don't know how much time, but she would not have seen those stores, those fast food restaurants. So that's a seemingly unimportant decision. Now the problem with that level of stuff is you're not consciously aware that you're doing it. She had no idea that she drove that way home in order to look at that when in a height of tiredness, late at night, her favorite bench time, she did that so she could look at them. 
But she did not know consciously that's why she was taking that route home. So when I work with people at that level, usually there's no conscious awareness until it's pointed out to them, then it becomes obvious. The conscious awareness of what they're doing to get to a behavior, they have a thought, they do a behavior that then gives them that which is the mental obsession. So those things have to be dealt with, and you better work with a recovered sponsor because they're going to point those things out when you're doing a no-brainer and you don't even see it. But they can clearly see that you're setting yourself up for repeated failures by putting yourself in high-risk situations. You know, uh, a clear example, you know, I've worked with people, I remember this one guy, he was somebody that um, had sexually abused a lot of the children, and he had, they called him a safety plan, where there were certain things he was not allowed to do. One of the things he was not allowed to do is drive by schools when children were coming into the building in the morning, nor drive by any schools when kids were coming out of the school building, getting on the school buses in the afternoon. Why? That, he couldn't do that. He could not do that for the rest of his life. He could not be in that kind of close proximity looking at all those children driving by because he, would, he, would, he, he basically sexually abused a lot of kids. And looking at all those kids would spur him to think it was a trigger moment which he would want to offend again. You see, he couldn't do that. So he couldn't do that, and nor could that woman drive by those fast food restaurants on the way home when she gets off work. It's really no different. You don't put yourself in high-risk situations. So if that's what you're talking about, yes, there's quite a bit of stuff that we'll do on the unconscious that we'll end up doing. As far as the particular food behaviors, there's a lot of things, yes, that we could talk about eating too fast, um, you know, eating in front of a TV or somewhere where you're not mindful to the actual ways you're eating and how much you're eating. There's actually particular ways of eating food that you need to get into a more healthy form and a, a recovery sponsor can work with you. But that's a more, um, that tends to be more easily observed uh, and you're aware of it than these studs. Um, I think you need to take the whole piece here, not only just look at the particular food behaviors of how you're eating, the particular ways you're preparing, too much energy around food, don't get a job working in a bakery, um, not an option. Um, and uh, then you go back to your suds. And, and again, there's a whole, whole way of doing that, but you first start putting the food down, then you work backward, and you keep working backwards further. And then we go back fast, even past the actual uh, suds into food, uh, mental states that get you into start thinking, and the emotional states. And that's all, but that's all being taken care of through the 12 steps, when you get even past into your emotional and your mental states that precede even the suds. It's a process, is what I'm saying. So, I don't, does that answer it? Um, yes, I I was um, thinking also maybe of how clean the food needs to be as far as weighing and measuring, and I still taste my food, you know, and pick while I'm preparing, and that's been a you know something I as you're as you're speaking today, I'm thinking, okay, so there's part of me that still wants to do this, so I get it, but I was hoping if you could talk about it a little bit more. Uh, yes, obviously you know you don't get to taste your food. If, you, if it needs to be tasted, you can have somebody else in the house tasting it. I, I don't taste my food. If you fix an item, you know what it needs. I mean, whatever. So, no, you don't get to taste it. Uh, um, that, uh, what was the other thing you said about tasting? What was the other example you gave? You gave me two examples of what. Sorry, I was unmuting. I said picking, you oh, know. Yes, all right, yeah. yeah. I'm preparing. I'm preparing. As far as weighing and measuring, 
you know, um, I thought uh, one serving size was a side of beef. I mean, I had no clue <laughs> when I came in. So, um, you know, with, with me, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not one that's going to tell you. I'm basically going to go with just what the government says. There's an official website. The US, United States, you know, there's the United States government has an official website that tells what for any and everybody is what is a normal portion size. I send them there. I said, you know, it's, it's not based on any latest book or idea. It's just what the U.S. government claims is a normal a portion size. So let's just start from that. Um, let's see what the government itself says is supposed to be neutral and just present just what is a healthy portion. And when you go to credible, uh, you, know, you know, food plans, and they, the portion size usually are about the same anyway. So I just said, so let's just start with them, kind of look and see what they say and take your portion sizes off what the uh, U.S. government says is an appropriate portion size. As far as weighing and measuring, understand, I, what I had, uh, I, don't, there's a, I know there's a technical term for it, but I call it the stop button. I know there's a term for it. Anyway, I have something, uh, there's a stomach, sends a signal, the gut sends a signal up to the brain, the brain says stop, and the normal person stops. Um, but that, I had a broken stopper. <laughs> I had overrode that signal thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times, right? So that signal stopped working. It, it didn't need, it, why? Why? I wasn't going to follow it anyway. So there was no stop sensation. In the, I just simply, you know, I, w I got on a train that had no brakes. So it wasn't going to stop at the station. It was, it was, going, it was just going to go. Um, so weighing and measuring, it's important for, for most people to weigh and measure, at least at the beginning, to know what is a proper portion size. I mean, just look at, you, you can't get it with your eyes. So most all of us are going to have to go ahead and weigh that out and measure it and see what's normal. That's what a normal portion looks like. And, um, and why not? We want to make sure that we're eating proper amounts because that's one way we can trigger ourselves into eating our binge food ingredients by is, is overeating something we really don't want, but we're doing that in order to get into something else. So yes. Uh, most people do have to weigh and measure. Now, if you begin to become like uh, trying to control it, I'm going to weigh and measure, I'm going to make sure everything's right, there's one green bean, let me cut it in half, and then you're getting into obsession, and you're as crazy as when you don't weigh and measure. And so that mental state of trying to control via weighing and measuring is not healthy and is going to get you back into eating compulsively. So you can take something and overdo it and be as sick as if you don't do it. So weighing and measuring with the attitude of knowing what is proper so that you can make sure that God works through you and, and you are asking as God gives you that gift every day, you use it as a, a necessary support. If somebody breaks their leg, they put a cast on it. It doesn't mean the cast is on for the rest of their life, maybe, but it's got to be on now because the, the leg won't heal. So weigh and measure and see what it looks like. Understand that and you know, you might have to weigh and measure the rest of your life. And is that such a big deal? Not necessarily at all. If I've worked with people, maybe they don't weigh and measure everything, but they wouldn't do that at the beginning. Um, so weighing and measuring is very important. Uh, but I'm not going to say weighing and measuring is the answer because I've worked with people that are crazy than a loon weighing and measuring. And I'm like, my God, you're, you're worse off than you were because now the scale has become your new God. And you've moved farther away from God and not closer via weighing and measuring. And so that has to be addressed too. So um, it's good in its proper form, but anything can be misused and be negative for us. So um, 
so I do work with people on that. Um, yes, you know, we do look at what's proper portion. Again, I don't get into what I think is proper. I tell them this is what the United States government says. Why don't we just start there? And, and they look it up and they go, oh, okay. Is that what that means? And I'll go, yeah. Like, I'll give an example. You know, uh, the government says uh, a portion size uh, of protein, let's say if it was meat or fish, they, it's four ounces raw, three ounces cooked. And they're like, what? I thought it was four ounces. I said, the government says four ounces raw, three ounces cooked. And if you go into a fast food restaurant, and, and I don't do this anymore because I don't eat this, but if you go into a fast food restaurant and you get a quarter pounder and they put it on a bun and they hand it to you, you're not getting four ounces of meat. You got three ounces. It was four ounces before they slapped it on the grill. 25% of it was fat and came out, and now you got a three-ounce burger. But you bought a four-ounce burger because technically they gave you a four-ounce, a quarter pounder. They gave you four ounces, but that was before they, they took the 25% out of it, most of it, that 25% out on the grill. So it is three ounces cooked. And people will scream and yell at me. I'm just telling you, that's what the governmental side says. I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, just look at it. You know, it's going to be three ounces cooked. So, uh, yes, I will work with them about that. Um, the person that has made that complete, utter, 100% admission, they're hopeless, aren't easy fighting. The ones that are not turning it over 100% want to get me in a, in a boxing match in the ring with them about it. And I'm like, don't fight me. Go do whatever you're going to do. Don't do don't, just do what you feel like doing then. But you might not want to work your program. You might want to work the program. I don't know if that helps. Hi. Thank you. Anita, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Anita. I have a question. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing. When working with others, you said that, um, that uh, you know, they all eat differently. Have you ever experienced working with someone that is just going to give their food to God and doesn't want to discuss it? Um, and then proceeds to tell you that they're a sugar addict, but they can have 7% of sugar. <laughs> uh, and uh, they don't want to discuss the food, but they want to work the big book. And uh, what do you say to them? That's it. Well, um, you know, I would not want to get in a plane with a pilot that um, doesn't have a license to fly that plane. And um, so um, I would probably want to, you know, have somebody that know that really has a li that has a license. Why would somebody that is not going to talk about it but admits they have the problem, so they're not going to get some training to make sure they get licensed to fly the plane, be the one that's your pilot? I I don't think that would be a healthy. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. So I why would somebody not talk it over? You know, I mean, I mean. To me, it would suggest, I'm not working with that person, it would suggest that person is not making 100% admission because you want to talk it over with somebody. You know you're hopeless. And if you know you're hopeless, you're the guy that has no training to fly a plane and you think you're going to fly a plane, you're, you're not going to think that. That's not going to make much sense. Uh, yeah, I'll just fly the plane without any training. I'll just do it fine. No, you, you want it and you, uh, you really want to work with somebody that's been there and done it, is on the other side, that will help you so because you so much want to do what God wants. Uh, so uh, I, I, I Well, my question person was, how do you know when God's talking and how do you know when you're talking? Well, you probably don't know. That's why you need a recovered sponsor to work with you. <laughs> First thing, we're frequently wrong. 
I don't care. You can be absent 50 years. We're frequently wrong. All of us can say that. We're frequently wrong. So um, try, we try to get a little more humility and realize that we are frequently wrong, and we check everything out with our sponsor um, so that we are, sh we are making sure that it's not uh, our self-will talking. Uh, that's why you talk to somebody to, ha to ha listen to what they have to say and so that you get some guidance because you don't know. You know, mm. usually... Usually, we don't know. Even today, I don't necessarily know. I, I'm pretty good now at, oh, that sounds like me talking. That was not a good idea that you just had, Ruth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can hear myself talking, and I know that's crazy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, you would be talking to somebody again. You're a, a pilot. You're going to fly a plane, and you have no training. You better be talking to somebody and get all the guidance you need. So you, you would uh, never really... It, I, I learned this early on. If it's a real important decision that you've got to make, this is what you need to do. Do nothing for three days. Do nothing for three days. Unless it, you know, the, the, the building's burning down and you've got to get out, do nothing for three days. You'll, you'll be surprised how things will look different in three days. Don't do anything for three days. Pray to God. Talk to your sponsor. Pray on it. And on, after three days, um, you know, and it's, and you've talked, and, it, and, and now it begins to really feel right in your gut and in your heart and not just your mind. You know, the, the self-will comes from the mind, and God comes from the heart. So I would just simply delay any major decision until those three days have passed to make sure this comes from my heart, comes from God. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ruth. Anyone else? This is Susan. Hi, Susan. Good morning. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. Thank you. I'm a little timid about asking this, but I'm I'm going to humble myself and ask it because I imagine it'll help others besides me. There's got to be someone else on the line like this. What about, it references in the big book, the people who haven't quote-unquote bottomed out. Maybe they were younger or whatever, but for whatever reason, they hadn't yet reached the point where they were at that quote-unquote bottom, whatever that means, and yet they knew they had this thing, as I do. I know the f exact foods that I'm powerless over, and yet I sit here in a slender body, even though I'm not bulimic, and I could tell you about the other things that are positive in my life, but no one needs to hear that, because perhaps they're just rationalizations, and yet I spend hours a day working my program, and yet I keep going back to the binge foods that I know are binge foods. I don't even always have the willingness. You know, sometimes it's a premeditated binge. It's not like I just found myself doing it. And I've let go of some of them. I would say that I've surrendered them to God some time ago. But they say that half measures avail us nothing. And so uh, all the knowledge and the letting go of some of doesn't avail me the lack of obsession. So I have the obsession of the mind as much as anyone else. And, um, you know, and, so, and yet I keep making this choice. And so uh, I'm humbled in asking it, but I just wondered if you could address that. And thank you so much for what you shared. I look forward to hearing it again on the tape. Okay. Um, you said that you know. Uh, I will have to say I think you're lying to yourself. My neighbor knows he can't eat seafood, and he doesn't eat it. You know you can't eat the binge foods, and you eat it. So I don't think you do know. I mean, if you knew, you wouldn't do it anymore, right? I mean, if we know, we don't do it. When I say no, I don't mean knowing in the head. You know it in your head, but you have to take step one in, the, in your heart to work it. Do you know it in your heart? Do you know it like my neighbor knows he can't eat seafood? If you know it like that, you don't do the behavior again. 
how does one get to know it in their heart? I think that's a very valid point, but how does one get to know it in their heart? <laughs> if being here for a year and listening to this, I, I haven't gotten it yet. Well, knowing it in your heart, you think, okay, give me information so I know it. But that level won't work. The big book's very clear. You know how you'll know it? The food will kill you. And before it does, hopefully, you'll know. We're not going to convince you. The food will convince you. Then there'll come that day when you'll know. The food will do it, not us. When that pain becomes so intense that you can't deny it anymore, that you, and then you do know it in your heart, you might want to try to concoct a way to get it to happen, but that's an intellectual exercise. To take step one, 100% with absolute perfection, I did not get up on the morning of November 15, 1986, and think, I think today, I think today I'll surrender. It never was on my mind, but it apparently was in my heart that I did not know, for that's what happened that day. Um, on that day, I simply gave up. I did not ask to be abstinent. I did not ask anything of God. I just simply said, I've made such a mess. You can do whatever you want now. I simply give up. And I never labeled that. I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't thinking what I was doing. I was so in the moment of my pain. It was so intense. It was so extreme that all I could feel was the pain and, the, and just willing to let God run the show. That I had, it was weeks, months later before it finally occurred to me, I would say months later before it occurred to me that I had apparently surrendered on that day because I hadn't eaten compulsively since that day. Months later that I would even put a label on that experience. When we have the experience, it's not an intellectual exercise. You keep wanting it to occur by something you're going to do, by some directions you're going to be given so that you'll get what you want. You don't get to play that game. You have to be willing not to do anything to get a result. You know when it's God's will? When you don't care about the outcome. When you don't care about the outcome in any way, you know you have now finally, in that moment in time, have God's will. Now that's pretty drastic. Can you imagine on your wedding day, so in the moment that you're giving it so much to God that you don't even care about the outcome of your marriage or your spouse or how it works out. You so much want God first that you will so much be in the moment of that that whatever happens, you will take in stride because you know that God will do a better job than you would ever do in that marriage. That you turn the marriage over to God first and allow the outcome to be whatever it is. Now that takes courage and faith that you would be willing at the height of your marriage to turn it over to God and let it be even that your husband or wife or whatever dies the next day. And you would take that outcome because you would trust God that level. If you could do that with the food where you don't care about the outcome, can you do that today? You don't care. You let it so be God in charge that whatever that is is okay by you because God will do a better job than you could ever conceive of. Can you turn the outcome of what you wish over to God 
instead of taking away to get some information so you can do something to get what you want, which is still you trying to control the situation, which means you'll never be abstinent. You will never be abstinent as long as you try to control the food in any way or how you get the food in a certain way in your life because now you're still in control, but you're not. That's the fallacy. Your attempt to control shows how much you're out of control. And you, I would say, say I, know, I know it. I think that's a lie. You don't know it because if you knew it, you wouldn't do it. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Star one to unmute if you'd like to ask a question of our speaker, Ruth, this morning. This is Marjorie, and I do have a question. Marjorie, go ahead. Ruth, when you are working with somebody and they do have that, um, they are in that, that position where they continue to go back to the food and perhaps they haven't reached step one, and I don't necessarily know when somebody reaches step one since I don't know what's inside of a person in regard to how you sponsor, how do you proceed with that person or do you just stop working with that person? Um, I don't stop working with them. They stop working with God. Um, I don't fire sponsorees. I'm not saying that's true, but I don't fire them. They always fire me, uh, which has happened many times. Um, when you say, did they take step one or not, um, generally I can pretty well know, but I also can't guarantee that I'm 100% right. They have to decide. When we get through our work in step one, I ask them, you know, uh, do you believe 100% with absolute perfection that you're powerless over food, that your life's unmanageable? They have to decide. And they decide, yes, they have. And, you know, usually, and I can say, yeah, it's very likely they have. I mean, based on what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing out of them, it really appears that they have. Um, and okay, then we move on to two. Sometimes I've had people say to me at that point, yes, I've had have taken step one, and it, it does not seem to me that it's, they have. But I'm not the one to say, um, you know, hey, you're wrong. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying, I don't, if I simply say this, when I did what you just did, I, I did not take step one. When I had the thought you just had, I did not take step one. But you believe you have, so we will move to two. But understand, when I did what you did, I actually went back to the food. And uh, they go back to the food. I mean, if that's true, they'll go back. I, again, I don't have to convince anybody. I don't have to play God with them. The food will kill them. If they don't do what the big book says, the food will kill them. It's not my job for the, to have them abstinent. It is, it is God's job through them. The book will tell them how to do it. But it's not my job. Then I'm playing God with them. So I, I don't say... Um, I mean, I'll tell them, I'll be honest, that that's not, that didn't work for me. Uh, but if they want to go on, go on. Now, if they eat compulsively and stop eating compulsively, they're killing themselves. I, I love them. You know, I love them. Um, and I've been with people that have struggled for a while. And uh, they make, some of them might be on the line. I might have a couple sponsors here that struggled for a while. And, and then they got it. Um, they finally were able to surrender um, and let God run the show. And I'm going to be with them. I'm not going to point a finger. I took four years. How can I point a finger at anybody? I can't point a finger at anybody and say, man, you're blowing it. I mean, I did, I did it. 
I've got people that got acid in only a year. My God, they took a whole lot less time than me, and now they're recovered. You know, I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, I'll just continue to work with them. Uh, but the food will kill them. I'm, I'm not in charge of them knowing or not knowing certain things. It only matters if they know from their heart. Hi, this is Catherine. Catherine, go ahead. Thank you, Ruth and Marjorie. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, thank you, Ruth, for your input and um, been very uh, enlightening. I, I eating behavior. I, I felt like sugar was removed from me two years ago, but I still fall into behaviors, and I noticed that and it pretty much came and hit me in the head this morning when you were speaking, um, fat. I've gone to some fat products, and um, I can fall back into my old grazing behaviors. Um, and someone mentioned obsession of the mind, and I think I'm still battling in that area. And um, I'm realizing I have not, totally surrendered. So, where do I begin? <laughs> First, I would change the word, I think I have. You just say, be honest and say, I have. I have. I'm in the mental obsession. Um, we have to get rid of all of our binge food ingredients. Uh, you know, I don't know your whole story, but it could have been at the point you looked and said, okay, I've got this binge food, I can't eat it, but you actually had a second one. Say, you knew it was sugar and artificial sweeteners, but you also had certain fats, and so now you realize you really didn't surrender everything because you have at least two. You might have a third one. I mean, you've got two of the, the big three that the food industry learns about. Is there's, uh, you know, I mean, sugar artificial sweeteners is one, and then, uh, you know, the fats, certain fats. I mean, there's healthy fats that we have to put in our body. We can't live without certain fats, but we're talking about like things, saturated fats, trans fats, all that stuff. Um, you know that that's a problem, so you have not... You're not abstinent. You know, we can't be imperfectly pregnant. Either we're pregnant or we're not pregnant. We can't be like, today, I'm 63% pregnant. People would look at you like you were crazy. Um, no, either you're pregnant or not. Either you're abstinent or you're not. And if you eat a binge food and don't eat a second one, all you can say is, I'm still not abstinent. I haven't done what I needed to do. I, I would have to take, if I was your sponsor, I'd take you back to step one. Because you haven't taken step one. If you, my, my neighbor is highly allergic to seafood. He doesn't have to say, this seafood I'm allergic to, but that one I'm not. He's allergic to all of them. So you're allergic to all your binge foods. You can't, you can't put any of them in. You've not made a 100% emission uh, with absolute perfection. You're still, you're still eating compulsively. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Ruth. Anyone else? Hi, this is Kim. Hi, Kim. Kim, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning, Ruth. First of all, thank you so much. I just love your no-holds-barred uh, presentation. Um, and I was just thinking, I just, just to maybe kind of explain more, bust some of the myths I often hear in the meetings. And one of the terms that kind of annoys me is that relapse and recovery. 
and I think it's often the progression of the illness. So can you kind of talk about the progression of the illness versus that concept we often hear in meetings of why, you know, I've been in and out of the food and I'm a relapse and recovery, I'm a relapse survivor and all that stuff, just to kind of drive home um, that idea of the progression of the illness? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, just like the previous question, um, I, again, I've not worked with first. It would suggest the person never really went into relapse because they never stopped eating all of their binge foods. If you don't stop eating all of your binge foods, what, you've never, you've never re- relapsed into something. You never actually ever was absent to begin with, so there's no relapse. You know what I'm saying? You haven't got out of it. You know, if, you're, if you just hit the ball in baseball, you haven't taken even one step from home plate. Forget about the fact, oh, I think I'm halfway between first and second because I've given up one binge food and i still got another one. No, you haven't even done entire abstinence, which is a requirement of step one. So um, in that particular process, I would say that you've, you've, not even, you've not even done the, the first thing, which is to put the food down. So uh, when we're in meetings and we hear relapse survivor and blah, 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 um, you know, I, I, I mean, it, I guess I do hear that. It, you know, for me, um, one of the things that we, we give ourselves away, we don't know we give ourselves away, but we'll be in a meeting and we'll say something and a recovered person will hear that and we've just given it away that we're not even, <laughs> we're still in the food in some way. We've not completely cleaned it all up. Um, and we're not done what we needed to do. And so... You know, we're not even being honest with ourselves. So there is a process. Um, I, can, I think it's important to look at relapse as a process. Uh, we want to believe that relapse is an event. It is not a process. Why do we believe that we want to do that? So we don't have to take responsibility of what happened. I don't know how it happened. You know, I, I was doing fine, and all of a sudden, I just, I just ha- it just happened. Like, I don't know, something fell from the sky and hit me on the head accidentally. That's a lie. Um, what I have learned in my relapse process, I mean, what I know is I see is what will take me back into the food. There's, uh, there's a progression that I go through, and it will be months later before I'll eat compulsively. Let's say there's 33 things I do, and the 33rd thing is I eat compulsively, and these other 32 things I'll do before I get there, I can intercede at the first one. I don't have to wait till I get to number 31 and realize I'm in really deep doo-doo. So there is a process, and... That's important to look at. So what is your relapse process? You need to know what it is so that you intercede earlier. So when I said, you know, you put the food down, then we look at the particular food behaviors, we look at the things that we do that are suds, the things that will get us to do behaviors that will get us into food behaviors, which get us into it. Then we go back farther and we look at the emotions. And we keep going back and we go back and back. And we intercede each place earlier. So why, do, why is it that I'm not thinking of eating compulsively is, you know, I, hopefully I'm, I'm able to intercede at that relapse process far before I eat compulsively. If you believe relapse is only eating compulsively, you've missed the boat because relapse is these other 32, 32 things. That's just the end point. But if you don't stop the relapse process far behind. So let me just say mine. I'm just going to give you general. I don't give you all the particulars. My relapse process always starts spiritually. What it means is I am not improving my conscious contact with God. In some way, I'm doing something that it's status quo or it's diminishing. If I don't improve my conscious contact with God, that is step 11. If I don't do step 11 work, 
I am in a relapse process because I'm not doing my step work. Now, what does that mean? Well, okay, instead of doing a half-hour meditation every morning, I do 27 minutes. What's the big deal, Kim? That's only three minutes less. I mean, I'm doing okay. It, it, it worked out fine. I'm feeling great. Uh, everything's going fine. Well, then I notice now I'm down to 24. You know, I'm, I, 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 I'm not, I find a way that I'm not actually putting in the time or the quality. I'm, I'm allowing not to have a proper space of quietness. I cannot meditate with a whole bunch of noise around me. I just, it just distracts me. So I need quiet. If that means to leave the home and go somewhere where I'm quiet, fine. Um, but I need to have a quality time that I meditate. If I find myself, which I can do, where I start noticing I'm, I'm not having the same quality, you know, what's going on? So that's always where my relapse process begins. It's not major. It's not, oh, my God, the world's, you know, falling apart. It's a small, just small quality is diminishing just a little. But I can tell. I can tell. So when, and I can break that down further, but let's just say the spirituality begins to diminish. The next thing will be, I'll start having thoughts Well, could just, just zoom through. They only last for a couple seconds. And these thoughts are not really healthy thoughts. <laughs> There's not much humility in them. Whatever those thoughts are, I, I can see myself starting to have thoughts that maybe I hadn't had for a while. I also notice that my emotions are more volatile. They're not as balanced. I'll, I can, I can um, find myself uh, being uh, uh, aggravated that there's a traffic jam where, uh, you know, I spent years realizing, oh, there's an accident. Oh, I, I'm just praying that hopefully nobody was hurt. And I really genuinely pray for, because I don't know, I'll pray for whatever happened for the people, that if somebody was hurt, that hopefully, you know, they're getting taken care of, they're getting to the hospital. My heart really goes out to them. It's not going to be anger that I'm in a traffic jam. I always start there. And if I come up to a traffic jam and I don't immediately start thinking of uh, possibly somebody being hurt and, and really praying for them, then I know that my spirituality is kind of off task because that's where I need to go to. Um, and then if I'm full of that sense of, you know, wanting, you know, whatever needs for God to do to be done, then I'm in the right place, even in the middle of a traffic jam. So you see, then I, I can see my emotions. Or, oh, I'm agitated. Why, why is there traffic? God, I've got to get somewhere. Then I know that just that little uh, thought of that, and then that feeling of agitation is relapse. So the spirituality goes, the thoughts, the emotions, um, then I might end up doing behaviors where I'll be doing suds, you know, which is, you know, that I'm not even conscious of. Uh, and then I'll get to a point where um, I'll start eventually thinking about food. The thought, the mental obsession will return. Now we're late in the ballgame. All this other stuff could have taken many, many, many months. And there could have been many, many uh, hundreds of times where I could have interceded and got myself back in line. Um, but, you know, when the thoughts occur, Wow, then you, then you, and then they begin, this, you know, the intensity, frequency, duration increase. Then I begin to do behaviors to try to get more, and eventually, of course, well, then the things like I won't call my smiles, I won't go to meetings, blah, blah, but that's late in the ballgame. That's really way down towards the end. That's in the last five or six places out of this 33. I've, I've already got up to about 27 when I've done that, and that stuff is going. It's escalating now, and eventually I would eat compulsively. So the relapse process, we need to understand our relapse process. I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly like mine, but generally most all of us I work with, that usually starts with some, some diminishing 
of our, of our connection with God. It starts there, and then these other things begin to just, you know, occur. So when we look at it from that perspective, in a way, in a way I'm always in relapse, in that there's always a piece of me that does, could do more, and I just need to be vigilant and improve upon it all the time. I never get complacent. I understand my process. I always have to make improvements, and I always find improvements to make. The day ends, and the day has always been a good day, but there's always something I could have done better. And, uh, and, and I say, okay, let me try that better. And in that sense is the relapse process I'm in. Um, so there is a very liberating and very empowering way to look at relapse. Um, and we can surely do that. And I, and I do do that, not initially when I work with people, but once they get uh, out of the food and farther on, then we will talk about the relapse process, of course, and put that as part of uh, relapse prevention, if you want to call it. You have a relapse prevention things that you do. And uh, whatever those particular things are you're doing, and, you're, and you continue to evolve and improve upon relapse prevention, because there's no reason for you ever to relapse, ever. If you're doing what the book says, and that profound personality change gets greater and greater, you, you continue to get closer and closer to God. And when you're, and when you're in step with God, food has no place to even be in your life. So, but all of us are human, and we can slip into complacency or arrogance or you know, just whatever and get messed up. But that relapse survivor stuff, blah, blah, you know, that a lot of times people are saying all that, you know, you don't really, I mean, you're just so focused on how to prevent relapse that you don't really usually talk like that. I mean, I don't. Oh, I'm a relapse survivor. Whatever. <laughs> you know, just do what you got to do. So I, I don't understand quite the, I mean, when I'm, if I'm arrogant, I'll, oh, yeah, I'm a relapse survivor. You know, don't boast. Don't boast about that. We can boast about things, but that's not one of them. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why you would boast about the fact you've been in relapse and now you're not. Uh, because you are doing it, and you're not talking about God, and God's nowhere to mention when you claim you're a relapse survivor. Then that's how you give it away to everybody in the room that you're in deep doo-doo, because you're not mentioning God in that discussion. It's all about you being a relapse survivor. You're doing it. Well, you are doing it, and that's why you continue to go in and out of the food. Does that answer it? Yes, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful reminder on the holiday when we try to think that this today is different. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Ruth, for that very important information. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Marion. I have a quick question. Um, one moment, please, one moment. Let's let Marion go first, and then your name is? Donna. Donna. Okay, Marion, and then Donna. Thank you, Marion. Okay, thank you. Uh, like I was trying to say that this is kind of embarrassing, but hopefully it'll, it'll help someone else, like the uh, person who asked a few uh, people before. Um, so I'm just going to ask it. How do I get the awareness? not to pick up uh, when stress comes in my life. And I'm sure, you know, that that happens with a lot of other people. And and I have been doing this, you know, being in the rooms for a very long time and just in and, in and out of relapse. And when the stress comes in, then I just give up finally. You know, it's always, the food is always the last, but I do give up. And how, how do I how do I deal with that? Um, well, again, look at the terminology. I give up. Um, 
I give up, do you really give up? Because what you're doing is going to the food. It's not giving up what you're doing. What you're doing is I'm feeling stressed and I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to give myself food to deal with my stress. So I would claim the terminology is flawed. I would say I'm not giving up. I'm still trying to control it. Because if my neighbor again, I go back to my neighbor, he doesn't go and eat seafood when he's feeling stressed because he knows he'll be dead in 20 minutes. So I, I would question your terms that I give up. You're not giving up. You're trying to control. You're trying to control pain or trying to control stress or trying to control something with food that you can't control. The whole issue of trying to control is the, is the problem. And if we're really going to give up, we give up to God. We don't give up to our self-will. So even the way you're talking about it, does that propel you more towards the behavior? I give up. Oh, my God, I give up. No, you're trying to control. Or you wouldn't do the behavior. But I'm not aware when I'm giving up. and It just slowly comes in. I don't have the awareness. Well, then you would work with a recovery sponsor. They can help you uh, point out those suds, for example, which almost always people aren't consciously aware of have been pointed out for you. Have, get some support, some guidance to point out the obvious to them that you can't see. You maybe can't tell because it's so ingrained, it's so unconscious and emerging that you don't know. Then you better be talking to somebody closely and more importantly, honestly, about all your thoughts and your actions so they can point out even the terminology that you're using to describe what you're going through. Um, you're not going to do it on your own. If you think you're going to try to just give up and don't know, where is God? And ultimately, the ultimate answer is, well, the food will kill you. You see, the pain will get so great, and then eventually we can show up at your funeral. That's what we'll right. end up doing for you. So either you will succumb to uh, the food, or you'll be aware that you have succumbed to the food, and you'll do whatever. You'll get a little more humble and, and have people guide you, take your hand and guide you through all these things, and that then you would ask their support. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marion and Ruth. Donna, please. Yeah, thank you so much, Leah, and thank you so much, Ruth, for sharing today. Um, I have uh, uh, a lot of the pieces of the uh, the wheel, the spokes, in place. The one piece of my tools I think that's missing is making phone calls and getting out of isolation, and I just... I struggle with this so much, and I'm wondering why, and do you have a suggestion, um, something more than just get on the phone? I mean, I, I don't understand why this is so difficult. Thank you. Um, so what you're saying is you, you're talking about tools. Um, I find, for me, I focus more on the big book and the steps. The tools may be just an inherent way to work them, but I really focus on step work versus doing tools uh, per se. Um, so I would, in that question, I would actually ask you, where are you in your step work? How is that step work? How are you doing, what are you doing to make sure that that step work improves? And whatever that may mean, then you'll need to do, you do it. If life is grand and everything is perfect in your life except you don't call people on the phone, well, that's not a bad thing, you know, if that's it. But if this is one of many if this is a, a problem because you don't call people because you're isolating and not calling them and you don't want to tell them what's really going on because if you did, you might like, you know, don't call the sponsor and tell her 
because if I do, I'll probably get talked out of eating and I'm going to eat, so I won't call her, so I don't call her, so I go ahead and eat, uh, then the problem is a lot more than not making a call. It's called self-will, and the self-will is running the show. So um, I would probably ask you more questions. Is it uh, not picking up the phone? Is what's really going on that you don't make phone calls? Um, so, uh, yeah, some people, when they don't make phone calls, is because they don't want people to know who they are. For whatever reason, I don't want you to know who I am. And if I call and tell you some things, you'll know. You'll know I'm inept in how to carry on a conversation with you. Or you'll know, you'll see through my facade and know that I'm really just filling the food and I'm playing a game try to try and present that I'm not. Or um, you'll find out something about me and then you'll hurt me because that's just the way I believe life. Everybody's out to hurt me. Um, you know, I remember early on in one of my early parts of recovery that um, I used to say that I was, I was fearful of intimacy. I mean, I, I, I just was fearful uh, that, that to be intimate, to be close, to have somebody know who I was. I was very, very scared of that. And I said that to myself until one day, you know, I was, in, you know, I was listening to a speaker, and I realized I wasn't fearful of intimacy. I yearned for intimacy. I had never had once a genuine interaction with another human being, like it says on page 53 of age 12 and 12. What I really feared was being abused if I was intimate. It wasn't intimacy that I feared. It was being abused if I was intimate because my story as a child was that I was abused, and, and so then I couldn't ever be intimate because that's what would happen because that's what happened in my home. And so I actually did it to myself, and in my fear of being abused, then I wouldn't make that step towards having an intimate, genuine, authentic conversation with another. It was too risky. It was too scary. I would get hurt because that's all that happened to me as a kid. I got hurt. got hurt bad. So I, I just couldn't seem to do that. <clears throat> and so I didn't pick up the phone. I mean, that's, I'm just telling you my story. And I wouldn't pick it up because somehow I would get hurt in the process. Yet I yearned to have a connection. If you could just call me up and talk to me, maybe that would be okay. Well, that's not the way it works. So I had to work through that personality. And today, I do not believe the world is a scary place. I do not believe that everybody's out to get me. I do not believe that I'm going to get hurt if I ever really show somebody who I am. I understand where it comes from. I honor my past. I would not change a second of it. Um, but it is not truth, those beliefs I held as a small child in, in trying to just survive another day in that home. Um, so those beliefs are gone, which was part of that profound personality change that naturally occurs as it's doing the 12 step work. So, I mean, I'm doing all these 12 steps. So um, I, would, I would put you back in the steps, and through the steps you'll learn why anyway. And why bother to ask the question, get the information? If you do the step work, you'll move toward, closer to God, and then you'll do the proper interactions with others, and all that stuff will get taken care of anyway, just as a part of doing the 12 step work. So I would actually talk to you about step work versus actually using or not using a particular tool on a given day. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Ruth. Other questions? Press star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Michelle. I have a question. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ruth. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the idea of our eliminating foods as part of our recovery, uh, that step one recovery process versus diet mentality. 
I, you know, see so much of that emphasis on weight loss and scale watching, and I've even heard people leaving program because they didn't lose as much weight as they thought. And, I'm, you know, I, I hear that, that kind of treating this as a diet as opposed to a way to be recovered from a hopeless condition. And if you could just speak to that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, a, a diet, you know, we call it a food plan, but we could just call it a diet for many of us because it's the same thing for many of us. Uh, a diet, the premise of a diet is that I am going to control. I'm going to get a specific plan. I'm going to follow that plan and get the results that I want from that plan, usually weight loss. So I am in control. And if I'm not, it just means I haven't gotten the right diet yet. Let me try the next one, then I'll control with that one. Well, that one didn't work. Let me control with the next one. So a diet mentality or people in program, and they'll give themselves away in the meetings. Why? Here's how you'll know. They never mention the word God. When talking about their food plan, talking about what they're doing, talking about how it's coming along, talking about what they perceive as the results of it, talking about how proud they are of what they've accomplished. There's a lot of I, 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 sung to the tone of me, me, me. And that's how you'll know. For the difference between step one and, and the food plan using it as a diet, the difference is the food plan, the diet, is always about me trying to get, getting it, applauding myself for getting it. It's about me. Once we take step one, 100% with absolute perfection, as I said earlier, we'll never, ever, 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 ever get any results on our efforts, be it a diet uh, or any other things I mentioned. We know that. We know that. Not intellectually, but in our heart. And when we know it, and move to God, we finally stop being the fish that swims in the water looking for water. When we know, we know, then we do whatever. We get a, a good person that's recovered who work with us. We're willing to follow directions and do what needs to be done because we know. We know who we are. And we've come home to our truth. And it's not diet mentality. It's just feeling grateful in a way we can't describe when we wake up in the morning knowing that we wake up and there's God handing us absence again. And we didn't deserve it in a, in a way because we're nobody special. But there it is being handed to us. And then we do whatever we need to do to take the gift. We either take it or we go over and spit on God's face. That's our choice when we wake up. I can go over there and spit on God's face and say no, or I can take it. And that's a completely different way of the food plan, which is just the way to make sure it's carried out as God wants us to carry it out that day. We get the necessary support from people that are recovered that will help us with that food plan, and we do whatever we can do to make sure that we don't spit in God's face today. He loves us, and we would never reject that gift. That's a different attitude than the food plan diet mentality. And you can easily hear it once you're recovered, you can easily hear it in people in meetings or one-on-one -on -one with them. I hope that helps. Thank you. Yes, it does. Hello, this is Rose. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning, Rose. Go ahead. 
Sorry. Um, yes, uh, this is Rosa, compulsive overeater. And Ruth, I do have a um, specific question, um, which when you were talking about the uh, relapse process starts with, um, you know, 11-step relapsing, you know, with the spirituality being off. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'm at, I'm writing my fourth step, and I'm in the, um, I'm just at the end, I'm almost finished with my fears. And um, and what what the question is is my spirituality has been off for a long, long time. Um, one of the fears I wrote yesterday was about maybe I'll never have a a real relationship with God after all these years of um, separating myself from Him, and so. I I do have um um I have taken the first step the second the third I do have a good sponsor um but this came up this was just yesterday and I'm interested in what your um what you could say in terms of while I'm on my fourth step in this section of it the next one will be the sex part um <clears throat> I mean, the question I even put out to God yesterday was, how do I start over with you? How do I pick it up where I dropped it? I mean, I've been given a lot by God, and I haven't honored it for many years. And I do have the hope from my fifth step and the rest of the steps, and, and especially what you've been talking about. God bless you. Um about the AA Big Book and the 12 and 12, that um, I that I can get back to God again. So the question specifically is, while I'm doing my fourth step, and I used to meditate, I used to have a prayer time in the morning, um, I used to have a lot of spiritual disciplines, and, and um, I got abstinent about a little over six months ago, after many, many years, and so, um, and cockiness and ego and everything is um, being worked upon, thank, thank, thanks to God, but how do I pick it up today? I mean, I didn't do a prayer time this morning, you know, I started my writing, so and I realized as you said that just a little while ago, I said, my God, Rose, when are you going to, how long are you going to wait to get with God, you know? Are you going to have to go to bed at 5 o'clock so you can get up early and, you know, and all my self-schemes, I, I'm not going back to them. So, so that's my question, Ruth, and thank you, thank you, God Almighty, thank you for everything. Okay, so um, what I'm hearing is um, an awareness that you have moved away from God and a yearning to be closer to God. And God hears that as you say it. I believe God hears your yearning to come close. And so the problem for most of us 
is moving away from and thinking we're moving closer or that it doesn't matter or that we don't need to get close to God. The fact that you realize you lack something and want to come close to God means you've already begun the movement back. For when we begin that yearn, we are already turning and moving back towards. You know, um, I, a person said one time, you know why we can't find God? Because God's not lost. And now you know that. So I, I think you've answered your own question. Ruth, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth and Rose. Any other questions before we begin to wrap up our special edition? Michelle, may I ask a question? Go ahead. Thank you so much for um, for being here, everyone, and for the um, here. Um, my question is: I live um, with some teenage food addicts and biogenetics. Um, they understand the addiction, but they have they're not willing to surrender. They want to stay that way, and I can't force my way upon them. But it's difficult when I'm trying to prepare food for them. They want me to buy food. I'm sorry, excuse me, there's a lot of static on your line. Is there a way you could perhaps reposition your phone so you come through clearer? Okay, sure. Is that better? Go ahead, let's see. Okay, um, yeah, I have to buy food and prepare food for um, teenage food addicts. And I just didn't know how I can do that because they don't want to eat the food that I eat at accident. And it makes me angry when I have to go in they're asking me to buy, you know, foods that have the things I'm allergic to. So I don't know how to, to deal with them. You know, should I continue to buy them things that I know are not, you know, are addicted to them and watch them suffer? Or, you know, just how to go about that if you could on that. Thank um, you. Well, I mean... The issue uh, that we need to clean up our side of the street first. So you said, I'm an, I am angry at them, and what am I going to do about them? I would say go and clean up your side of the street and deal with your anger that you have towards them. So you would work wherever you're at. Even if you aren't at step 10 and 11, you can still work with your sponsor on just this issue and she can take you through a very quick way to go through. You don't even have to understand what she's doing, 4 through 10, to understand where you are in this anger. Because how you treat your family in anger is not what God would want. I don't believe God wants us to come from anger towards people or come from fear towards people. I do not, believe, I do not find God in anger and fear. I find self-will. So I would need to clean up my anger towards them so when I look at them, my heart bursts with love towards them, and then I would know what to do for them from that place, for that is God through me with them. So I don't believe the answer is what you need to do about them. I think the answer is what you need to do about you, which is to clean your anger up so that it doesn't block you from letting God come through you. Thank you, Ruth. Anyone else?
Hi, it's Michelle. I have another question. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just trying to, I guess the question, another question I have is, do I continue to purchase these foods that I'm addicted to for my family? Well, again, I'm trying to I understand you're trying to get something done about that situation. I'm saying for me, I cannot make an adequate decision and what's proper when I come from anger towards them or fear. I'm not able to have God come through me and make the proper decision without cleaning my stuff up. So, yes, it's, it's sometimes where I want to rush to get something taken care of with them, but I don't have the ability to do it because I've made the choice to have God not be part of how I deal with them. God has to be in what I do, and I need to stop, clean myself up, you know, you know, I need to clean the, you know, it's like I'm potty trained now. I, 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 need, I know I'm potty trained, so I've got that down. I know how to make sure that, you know, I know how that works. And that's, if I'm not potty trained, you know, emotionally, you understand? If I'm not potty mm-hmm. trained emotionally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poop all over everybody, no matter what I do. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? So you can go talk okay. about them, but get yourself potty trained first with your emotions and clean it up. And then okay. you'll have your answer. You, it will come to you. It will come out of you because God's coming through you. You know, it, it's like when you, I, I work with people and it's like, I'm just listening like, wow, that's great. Because I've cleaned all their crap up. They're not in fear and emotion and, and anger. And from, God comes right out and I'm witnessing it. So I, as a sponsor, listen to that and it's just marveling. So it's me helping them clean their own, you know, clean their own, pot, their own stuff up. So uh, you've got to get emotionally potty trained before you go out and start working on others. And that's just my view. Okay. All right. Thank you. That makes sense. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye. And thank you, Ruth. And thank you, everyone, for your questions. And, of course, thank you, Ruth, for your time and your effort and sharing your experience with us as you uh, taught the doctor's opinion this morning. Much, much appreciated. And I will now close with a reading from page 164 in our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.